This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. I am uh, an incredible fan of Andrew Roberts, and uh, it's easy to see why. He is uh, one of the best-selling living historians. He is someone uh, whose uh, scholarship on Winston Churchill is source material for, I don't think it's an exaggeration, thousands of other authors across the political spectrum, by the way. He's written the definitive book on Napoleon. He's someone that only not only makes a habit of corresponding and dealing with world leaders and heads of state, but they actually seek out his counsel in terms of how to proceed through an understanding of a prism of history. And I read one of his books, I've read several of his books, but the quote from the Wall Street Journal on his book, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History, which is a great book, which I can't recommend enough, it really says it all when it comes to Andrew Roberts. Roberts is a masterly storyteller. I can't think of a better description. Very pleased to welcome to the program popular historian, journalist, and a member of the British House of Lords, also a best-selling author whose latest book was written with General Petraeus, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, Professor Roberts, thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you so much, Frank, for that uh, magnificent encomium. (laughs) Well, let me also uh, apologize. I believe you are the first member of the House of Lords that I've ever spoken to, and I have to plead ignorance. I'm not sure of the proper way to address you. Should I have said uh, your lordship? (laughs) Well, you can call me Andrew. (laughs) How about that? If we we were being very... uh, pompous about it, then uh, either your lordship or in the House of Lords, the uh, doorkeepers and the police and, and the clerks say, my lord. So ah. either of those would do as well. <laughs> uh, well, I kind of like your lordship, actually. Now, just so I, I and again, pardon my American ignorance, but uh, do your descendants get to inherit that title? No, they get to inherit the title, the Honourable. Ah. Um, and they have that for the rest of their lives. But um, but they don't inherit my title. There are 97 peers in the upper chamber who um, are hereditary peers, and they and their children do get to uh, to inherit their. So you sit next to people who are actually called the Duke of Wellington, for example, uh, which is quite a um, fascinating prospect. Now, I know you're a, uh, a a recent member of the House of Lords. Obviously, your scholarship for the last several decades just speaks for itself, and uh, your the book sales alone are um, you know voluminous enough to have you stand out in international history. Did you ever expect it to be named an actual lord? No, no, I didn't really. Um, what tends to happen if you're very distinguished in uh, in your uh, career is you might get a knighthood, so you become Sir Andrew Roberts. 
And that really was the highest um, uh, hope that I had. So it came as quite a uh, um, uh, quite a, a sort of exciting moment for me when I joined the handful of other historians who are um, who are in the upper chamber. Uh, let me begin by asking you about uh, something that has made an uh, incredible amount of news this week. Uh, the passing at the age of 100 of uh, probably America's best known and perhaps most controversial diplomat, Henry Kissinger. I know you knew Ken- Henry Kissinger. He's quoted in several of uh, of your books and uh, has said a lot of great things about your work. Um, what did what was your view of Henry Kissinger's legacy, and what do you make of those who point out the negative aspects of Henry Kissinger's record, going so far as to call him a war criminal? Um, I think Henry uh, has left an enormous legacy for uh, America. I think when you look at America in the early 1970s, um, when he was uh, National Security Advisor, and then later on, of course, he also became Secretary of State. Um, America was in, a, was in a difficult and dangerous situation, um, obviously in Vietnam, but uh, also it seemed to be on the retreat in, uh, uh, across the world, really, in Asia and Africa, Latin America, and so on. And uh, what Henry managed to do by astute diplomacy through incredibly difficult times, including a war in the Middle East and the quadrupling of the oil price and the, um, and the uh, upping of the, of the Cold War, essentially, was to put America back into the saddle. And by the time he, uh, he left office in 1977, the United States was in a much stronger and better position um, internationally and globally. We in Britain certainly looked up to the leadership of the free world that, uh, that Henry um, personified in many ways in that decade. Along with... Sorry, and with regard to, to the critique of uh, what happened in Chile and in... Uh, uh, East Timor and Cambodia and so on. With regard to Chile, uh, it was a uh, communist country. It wasn't a, a totalitarian dictatorship yet, although historically communist countries do al- almost always become totalitarian dictatorships. With regard to the uh, Cambodian uh, bombing, it's sort of secret war that he um, and uh, President Nixon undertook, you know, the, the Viet Cong were bringing their uh, resupply and reinforcements down through Cambodia. In that sense, although legally not, it was militarily a perfectly um, acceptable target. In terms of um, Winston Churchill, whose birthday it was yesterday and who you've written a great deal about, I happen to reread, because it was his birthday yesterday, the chapter that you wrote in your book, uh, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those who made history. There's still such a fascination with Churchill so many uh, years after his passing. What do you think the essential lessons from Winston Churchill are, for instance? Well, I think um, moral leadership um, is, the, is the key thing, really. Uh, he was a strategic leader um, par excellence, but he also had this sense of um, forward thinking. He was able to warn about the threat posed by Wilhelmine Germany before the First World War, then, of course, the threat posed by Hitler um, before the Second World War. He was a great strategic leader and, and superb when it came to morale during the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, of course, he was the first person to warn against Soviet communism and what it was doing in Eastern Europe at a time when it was also very unpopular to say the, the, that. 
So he, he was willing to put his reputation on the line again and again and again. And in the four great uh, dangers and struggles to um, uh, uh, democracies faced in the 20th century, he got all of them right, and he got all of them right very early on. Um, you know, I also came across a very interesting debate from about uh, 15 years ago of um, you and Pat Buchanan discussing the legacy of Churchill in during the World War II and the run-up to World War II. And it was really interesting to watch. And you can go on C-SPAN's website if people are interested in seeing it. And even though you and Pat Buchanan draw very different conclusions on uh, your scholarship, you're still quoted extensively in his book, would you acknowledge uh, that even with the moral clarity and the leadership that Churchill provided during uh, World War II, that uh, he made a significant number of mistakes in the run-up to World War II? Um, no, I don't think I would accept that. He, um, he, he made mistakes all the way through his life, and he was the first to admit it. He writes to his wife Clementine in the January of uh, 1916 saying, I would have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. Mm. And the great thing about Churchill is that he learned from all his mistakes. He made mistakes over the gold standard, over votes for women, over um, the abdication crisis and so on. But I think he got, the in the 1930s, he managed to get um, pretty much 95% of it right, which for any politician is pretty extraordinary. He warned against the rise of Hitler and the Nazis before anybody else did, and more eloquently than anybody else did. He didn't change his uh, stance because of... Uh, of you know offers of office or what, how the voters were um, thinking at the time, he stuck to what he said, what he believed in, and of course, ultimately, he was proved absolutely right and was made prime minister on the back of it. Speaking of Hitler, he's someone you also feature in uh, your book, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. Obviously, uh, Hitler, a uniquely satanic figure, deeply anti-Semitic. You, you chronicle a number of other uh, poor aspects of his character, him uh, being uh, quite a braggart, him being incredibly misogynistic. What lessons are there that people can learn from Hitler if there is a positive lesson to be learned from Hitler? Um, don't vote for anybody who isn't going to allow you to um, vote them out of office later. <laughs> I think is the classic one, really, when it comes to to what uh, electorates around the world should uh, uh, should learn. When um, uh, when you're faced with a uh, somebody on the ballot paper who you know you will not be able to remove by democratic means once they become uh, leader, then don't vote for them in the first place. I also alluded to the fact that uh, you wrote uh, a, a tremendous biography of Napoleon, considered one of the greatest Napoleon scholars in the world. There's this new film out about Napoleon. I haven't seen it, and uh, I have heard varying things. I, I haven't had the four hours to earmark to watch it yet. I understand. <laughs> uh, I understand you have seen it. I'm curious as to your review of the film, both from an entertainment perspective and from the perspective of of historical accuracy? Well, um, you're quite right. It is a long film. It's two hours, 38 minutes, in fact, of which um, 38 minutes are historically accurate and the other two <laughs> hours are completely historically ludicrous, uh, um, Frank. I can't tell you uh, the, the absurdities that, um, that Sir Ridley Scott has put uh, forward. He has actually attacked historians. He said the other day that... Um, um, Effing historians, what do they know? They weren't there, um, which, of course, as you can imagine, has caused quite a lot of hilarity amongst historians as they were not allowed to write about anything that we weren't personally present at. 
Um, he, uh, it's, a, it's a lovely film in terms of the palaces and the uniforms and the, and the sort of dresses that the women wear, and, uh, and it's got some great battle scenes, although historically completely inaccurate again. And, um, and so as a sort of visual entity, it's fun to go and watch, but please don't take any history from it at all because he's managed to get pretty much everything wrong. Well, what are a couple of the glaring errors in the film that if people do go to see it just for entertainment's sake, they should take particular pains to make sure that they're not letting seep into their consciousness? Oh, he, he bombards the pyramids at one point, he actually fires cannons at the pyramids. He takes part in cavalry charges, which he never did. He, um, he's, the Battle of Austerlitz is shown as having been won because he fired cannonballs at the ice, and so the Russian and Austrian armies fell through the ice. These, um, these lakes have been uh, um, extensively dived, and there's, uh, they've managed to find one cannon and uh, a few cannonballs um, and a couple of swords. I mean, it was just not an important or, or um, uh, let alone decisive aspect of the Battle of Austerlitz. Um, and we have literally hundreds of people who met Napoleon and who, um, who uh, wrote down what you know, he said and what he did, and, and none of that is to be found in the film. Instead, you get completely absurd things where he essentially has sex with um, Josephine, uh, his wife, the Empress Josephine, under the table whilst the servants are present. Um, and uh, in fact, it was a it was a sort of well known for being a highly dignified court that was attempting to sort of ape the Bourbon court. So uh, it's uh, it's just one one error after another. Interesting. We're talking with uh, Andrew Roberts. His uh, latest book with uh, General Petraeus is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, so. Your Lordship, tell me about this uh, this book, Conflict. Why did you feel that the evolution of warfare from 1945 onwards was something that needed to be chronicled and explained? Well, when the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine took place, I got on to David, who I knew quite well, and, uh, and said, look, there are going to be lots of geopolitical books and political books that are going to come out about the Russo-Ukrainian war, but what we ought to write is one that's just simply from the military history perspective, putting the war in its military history um, terms. And um, luckily he jumped at the chance and we got on to the publishers and they said, how are you going to divvy up the chapters? And I said, well, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded <laughs> and uh, I'm going to do everything else. And uh, he also wrote the Vietnam chapter. And what we wound up with really was a um, book about how the concept of war and how people actually fight wars has altered from 1945 to Ukraine. And Ukraine itself was an important, uh, is an important um, paradigm shifting war because of the way that technology has been used to uh, harness essentially much better by the Ukrainians than the Russians at the moment uh, to, um, uh, to defend the country. How has, I realize there's a whole book about this and I'll encourage folks to read it, but how has conflict changed from 1945 to 2023? What are the understanding that it's due to technological advancement? What are the areas that technology has caused warfare to change? Oh, in, in so many. We, um, in the 10th chapter, the last chapter, we go into all of this and also the, um, the future of warfare. And we talk about space and cyber 
um, about drones, of course, which has been uh, tremendously important in the Ukrainian war, various anti-tank weaponry, which was in its infancy in 1945, but is very advanced today, as we see from the turning back of the Russian convoy um, going into uh, Kyiv last year. And... Um, we talk about information, disinformation, misinformation, so important as well as an aspect of, um, of fighting today, much more than it was in, even in 1945. And um, so there are, there's also, of course, a, a lot about robotics and AI and the way in which that's going to alter warfare. We're going to see drones fighting against drones. We're not going to be seeing, seeing pilots in jet planes. We're going to see computers in them because the pilots, uh, however fast they are, are not going to be quicker at thinking than the computer. So it's a, um, it's a huge area. Um, almost everything has changed, except, of course, the uh, ultimate thing where you, where you put troops on, um, on the territory you captured, and, and that hasn't uh, changed, although with robotics it might not be done by human beings. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Why, I suppose you could have uh, started uh, in any year, 1945, 1845, or 1845 B.C. Did you choose 1945 because uh, that was when nuclear weapons were first used? Did you choose 1945 because that's when World War II ended? Why begin there? Well, both of those reasons, certainly. It was a sort of dream of peace that started in 1945. People thought that the United Nations was going to be able to abolish war after this terrible conflict in which 60 million people died. And so that's why we entitled our first chapter The Death of the Dream of Peace, because it became quite clear, um, not least with the Chinese Civil War, which started in 1946 and killed uh, some 6 million people, that this, um, this hope that human nature could in some way alter and that, um, and that war would be a thing of the past had um, been obviously turned into a, a pipe dream. One of the things that we've seen since 1945 is that countries that have nuclear weapons aren't invaded by other countries. And countries that give up their nuclear weapons, like, say, Ukraine, they are vulnerable to invasion from uh, other countries. So if you're a rational actor, wouldn't every nation want to have nuclear weapons? Uh, yes, which, of course, is one of the um, major problems that we have with regard to um, um, nuclear proliferation. And uh, with Iran at the moment attempting to, uh, or which would love to have a nuclear bomb and certainly would, would start making one the minute that the Western nations turned um, their attention elsewhere, there is a very serious threat, not least because if Iran did, then, of course, um, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and other um, countries in the region would also get theirs. So it is, uh, you put your finger on it, there is a huge advantage to having nuclear weapons. Um, I give you another one example, though, of course, of a country that um, has had nuclear weapons probably since 1967, and yet which is attacked, and indeed was attacked last month, and that's Israel. Um, but there is the assumption, of course, that um, with mutually assured destruction, the... Uh, 
the country that has nuclear weapons doesn't use it unless doesn't use them unless there's a uh, existential threat to its very existence. You know, in the case of Iran, I mean, you see totalitarian regimes like uh, Kim Jong Un in North Korea. And he's able to remain in power because folks are afraid he may use a nuclear weapon or a hydrogen bomb or something of of that nature, even though everything that we do know about North Korea, as little as it may be, uh, shows him to be just not only horribly oppressive to his own people, but uh, potentially a threat to uh, a variety of other civilizations. And he's threatened to uh, be a very, very real threat to a variety of other countries. You look at that juxtaposed with uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, who, while he may not have had nuclear weapons, he did have other weapons of mass destruction that he voluntarily gave up. His reward for giving up those weapons was he was subsequently taken out by an international coalition of Western countries. Seeing what happened in uh, North Korea, seeing what happened in Ukraine, seeing what happened in Libya – if you're Iran, doesn't it make sense from their perspective to pursue a nuclear weapon? Um, yes, of course it does. And it, it also makes sense for the United States and uh, for who, of course, Iran has been denouncing for 30 years as the great Satan and for the United Kingdom and, uh, and other countries in the region as well, like Israel, to where the Ayatollahs have, have said that they're going to wipe Israel off the map when they get a nuclear weapon to stop them from getting it. So it does make perfect sense for them, but it makes equal sense for Mm -hmm. us to um, make sure that it never happens. Talking with Andrew Roberts, his uh, latest book is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. You you alluded to the use of uh, technology in the Ukraine conflict, particularly by the Ukraine side. How is the war going from what you can tell? How are things faring? Well, David uh, Petraeus and I went to Kiev about six months ago and talked to a lot of the of the generals and, uh, and ministers there, and uh, they had a, um, a pretty high morale at the time because they were they were building up for the uh, great uh, late summer early autumn offensive. But that has not had the uh, hope for breakthrough. Um, it turned out that the Russian mines, uh, which are of course protect, protected by drones, are um, much much deeper. The minefields are miles deep, as opposed to a few hundred yards, and uh, and they're being um, they're being deepened all the time as well. So it hasn't um, seen the great sweeping um, open country manoeuvres that we were hoping might be able to get the Ukrainian army to the Sea of Azov, which, if it had managed to do that, would have then put an enormous pressure on on Crimea. So um, so morale is correspondingly less um, high than it was. However. Um, that said, the, um, the latest remarks by the Ukrainian foreign minister are, are still pretty, uh, pretty punchy. You know, they are not about to uh, to give up. With the Ukrainians and the Russians both utilizing uh, military conscription, and the population of Ukraine being 40 million, and the population of Russia being 140 million. What role does the difference in population between those two countries play in terms of the likely outcomes of this conflict? Uh, historically, it plays a great um, a, a, a great deal. Of um, uh, it's very important. You know, if you are able to um, to put three times the number of men in in uniform, ultimately that is going to have an effect. 
there are um there are some disadvantages to it of course politically in russia it's uh, not popular to have um, mass conscription um it's also very very expensive the russians are now spending some 40% of their gdp on defense which is the highest uh since the fall of the soviet union um it's also you also need a huge amount of training um to um to operate effectively and they're sending troops into battle that frankly haven't been trained to the degree that they need to be which means that the ukrainians have um have managed to uh win any number of tactical victories especially last year so there are some um some dangers and drawbacks in having very large uh, sort of levee en masse um armies but uh, overall of course it's a very good thing to have numbers if you can if you can produce them Lastly, um obviously the British government is very different from the American government, but there are a significant number of democratic traditions that are part of the British system. I see that the uh, foreign the former prime minister of the UK, David Cameron, has been uh, made a part of the current government in the UK. I believe he is uh, home secretary and the in order oh foreign secretary, excuse me. Uh, because in order for him to be a part of the government, he would have had to have been a part of parliament. I understand he's been appointed to the House of Lords, just like you, uh, even though he's not been elected. Given the fact that traditionally people who hold this role are at least elected by someone, I could see folks viewing this as a bit undemocratic. Are folks in the UK viewing the appointment of David Cameron as undemocratic? No, no. We've had plenty of uh, secretaries of state in the House of Lords. I mean, over the centuries, we've had we've probably had more in the House of Lords than in the House of Commons. Um, you don't need to. Uh, you need to obviously uh, elect a, uh, a government uh, democratically, but you don't have to have every single member of that government sit in one chamber and none in the other. That would be um, that would be unconstitutional, and it would be very much against our our long history of having ministers from both um, houses of parliament. Are you sorry you didn't get the the call to serve in the current government? Um, I'm a bit too busy writing history books, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, Frank. But uh, no, I, uh, I, I'd hate to be a I'd hate to be a day to day retail politician. That would be the absolute ghastly job. I, I, I rather suspect. I, I rather suspect you're correct, uh, Andrew Roberts. Uh, please check out his new book with General Petraeus: Conflict: The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Thank you, Your Lordship. I hope we can speak again. Thank you so much. Of course, I'd love that. If you, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.